It's awesome singing with you and hearing you shout out that anthem because when you sing like that, it restores and builds hope in me. And I think that's part of what we do when we sing together. We do it in community because we all, we all need it in our lives. Well, we want to welcome you. Good morning. Oh, uh, you can do better than that. Good morning. Good to be together on this Palm Sunday. I'm Pastor Nate Keeler. I'm the lead pastor here at Brandywine Valley Church. After the service, I'll be hanging around out in the lobby. Come say hello. Uh, if we haven't met or if we've already met, but it's been a while, uh, come say hi. Love to get a chance to catch up with you. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 and 15. If you're newer to the Bible, uh, Mark is one of the four gospels in the New Testament. So head about two-thirds into the Bible, uh, if you want to grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you or pull one up on the app, we also have the words up here on the screen. But we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in, in Mark. We're in the second of those four Gospels where we are and have been for quite some time walking through the life of Jesus. Mark is the first Gospel account historically written. It is the closest to the very events of Jesus' life. And so we're looking at the historicity of the real Jesus, not the one that we've created in our society, in our culture, the one that we just imagine him to be, but the one is actually revealed to us in the scripture. So we're in Mark chapter 14 here today. I'm going to say a word of prayer for us, and we're going to go into the word of God here this morning. Lord, as we encounter your word today, may you, through your spirit, Take the words on the pages and that they wouldn't just be some dusty, old, ancient book written in another language, another culture, but they would become alive in our hearts this morning. May they jump off the pages and into our souls. May they become what seems to be maybe irrelevant things about someone else's life to become highly relevant to our very lives and our very circumstances today. So, Lord, what we're asking is that you would change us, that you'd transform us because we sat under the teaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have raised children, you know that by the age of about one, a child has mastered the word no. Would you agree with that? They have figured out exactly when to use it. You didn't have to teach it to them. It just sort of shows up. And probably by the age of about two, maybe three with some kids, they've mastered the phrase, no fair, right? You have kids, some of you young kids, how often do you hear, no fair? You hear it all the time. Somehow, by about two or three, already the human race has realized that, or at least think, that we are the arbiters of justice. We know what fairness is all about. My wife was a teacher in our preschool, in the Brandywine Valley Preschool, she was teaching the twos and the threes. And uh, she has this rope ring that she used. It's a rope and it has rings on, on the rope um, that kids would grab onto and they'd be led to you know, different classes, to the gym, wherever they need to go. And each one of these rings had a different pattern on them or a different color on them. And so naturally, as twos and threes do, they begin to argue over whose turn it is to have which polka dot or striped or, you know, pink or blue ring. And so each day, these cute little adorable kids in the classroom would sort of turn 
the classroom into a courtroom. You know, they're like little lawyers arguing for why it's not fair that little Jack gets to have the ring with the gold, you know, stars, and little Susie doesn't this time, and why little Susie deserves it, and little Jack doesn't. And so, you know, this went on for a little while, and Shannon came up with a great idea. She took that rope ring, she brought it home, and we took blue tape, and we covered every single one of those little rings up with blue tape. And we said, and she took it back and she said, hey, now there's nothing to argue about. And you know what? She was right. Arguments stopped. Now we can laugh at little two and three-year-olds thinking that, you know, they're the arbiters of justice, that they know better about what is fair in life. But in the reality is, I wonder if we're really that much different. Don't we still argue about what is fair and right? Don't we still think that we're the arbiters of justice? justice in our day. This happens to me when I'm driving down the road and there's road construction and the guy with the construction sign and the guy or the girl that has like slow or stop and they're letting everyone through and then they get to my car and it's stop. Say, no fair. Don't, don't you know I have places to be. I need to get to where I'm going. It's not fair. Or maybe you have a, a, one, your daughter or your son is on a sports team, and you know that your son or daughter is better than the coach's son or daughter, but the coach's son or daughter is getting more of the playing time? No fair. How does this work? Now, these are kind of silly things to get uh, angry about and think this is injustice done, but there's a lot of serious things in our lives too, isn't there? You know, you've worked hard to eat right and take care of your body and, you know, get the right amount of sleep and vitamins, and yet you still get that diagnosis that puts your future in uncertainty. Or you've been, you've tried to be really good with your money and financially, you know, you've been very, uh, a good steward and very responsible, but then just as you're thinking about retirement, the market tanks, and suddenly you say, I don't know if I'll have enough to retire. This doesn't seem fair. Maybe you're dealing with depression that just is hanging over you, and anywhere you go, it seems like everyone else is happy and just doesn't seem fair. Dealing with pain or grief in some way that just will not quit is just persistent. And we say, no fair. And we take our life and we kind of turn it into a courtroom. And at least for Christians, but not just Christians, I think all of us tend to do this, is we, we tend to put God on trial in these moments. Say, God, this isn't fair. Where are you, God, in the midst of my unpleasant, unfair, unjust circumstances? You ever do this? I know I do. When evil is winning, when bad things are happening, God, where are you? And this is the problem, this is the question that we want to address here in our text this morning. Jesus is in a courtroom in the text that we find ourselves in. And if anybody, if anybody had a right to say that this trial was unfair, that the, the hearing was unjust, it would have been Jesus. And if anybody had the, the right to be arbiter of what is just and fair, it would have been, been Jesus. And yet how Jesus responds in this text that we are going to read to the, the injustice and the unfairness made the people that were watching completely amazed because what he did was completely counterintuitive and unique in culture. 
And so that's what we want to look at today. We want to learn the secret of facing even the most unfair circumstances in our lives. Okay? Y'all good with that? If you're all good with that, say, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So Mark's gospel focuses on two trials that Jesus faced. We know historically that Jesus actually faced four trials. Two of them show up here in Mark, Mark 14, 53 to 65, we see a Thursday night trial into the early hours of Friday morning. Jesus stands before the religious, in a religious courtroom, before the religious leaders on the second floor of the palace of Caiaphas, who is the high priest of Israel, and the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling religious body of Israel. Remember last week, Mark, we, we saw that Mark was Uh, Mark depicted Peter in the courtroom uh, denying Jesus as Jesus was up on the second floor. This is the place where this is happening. And then we also see a second trial, a second courtroom, Mark 15, 1 to 15. That's happening on Friday morning. Jesus is standing before the civil courtroom of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the appointed Roman judge in occupied Israel. So with that, setting, that context we see here, Mark 14, follow with me, starting in verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. You ever heard the term kangaroo court? That's what's happening here. The leaders of Israel are trying to throw things at Jesus to see what sticks. What can we get that will stick on Jesus that we can set him up for a a trial, to get him out, to get him killed, to get him executed? And so false witness after false witness is coming before them, probably paid off by these guys as, as Judas was paid off with 30 pieces of silver. And they're coming forward and they're testifying against Jesus, but it says their testimonies aren't matching up. You know, so this, this is kind of a mockery. It's a, it making them look silly. You say, well, man, why are they going through all this trouble? Why didn't they just, you know, sneak off and kill Jesus? I mean, these are powerful people. They probably could have got away with it, you know? Just get them whacked and move on. Why didn't they do this? Well, I think the reason that they didn't take justice into their own hands is because they feared the Jewish people. If you've been following with us in Mark We see time and time again, these religious leaders were wanting to seize Jesus. They were wanting to kill him, but they feared the crowd because the crowd loved Jesus at the time. And so what they did, they were very smart. They decided, let's not go and take justice into our own hands because that'll be on our heads. Instead, let's make Rome do it. Let's make Rome kill Jesus. And so they needed to find a charge that wouldn't stick in a religious court, because after all, what do the Romans care about Israel law and religious law? They don't care about that. They need to find, they need to find a charge that would stick in a civil court. So that's what they're looking for. So far, nothing is working. Verse 60, we see Caiaphas starts to get pretty frustrated. He says, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you going to answer What is this testimony that these men are bringing up against you? But he remained silent. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And in doing so, we're reminded of that prophecy in 
Isaiah 53, verse 7, written hundreds and hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, which talks about the suffering servant, this Messiah, who would to come. And it says this, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was fulfilling the messianic prophecy about his life. 61, again, verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the, of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest at this tore his clothes, an act of frustration, an act of, of uh, defiance. And he says, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then someone, some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Apparently, the, this court, this religious court, found something that they thought would stick. And the reason that we know to that is we turn to chapter 15, verse 1. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. What is it that they found that they thought would stick? Well, we found it right here in the text in response to Caiaphas's direct question. Do you remember Caiaphas's question? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God, the, the Son of the Blessed One? How did Jesus answer? He says, I am. But he didn't just say that. He said more. What else did he say? He's also saying that he is the fulfillment of another prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. Now, we don't have time to walk all through this, but let me just kind of summarize it. In Daniel 7, there's this great prophecy about a coming king, the one that is like a son of man. That is, he's God and he's man. He's, man, he's God in flesh, and he is coming to judge, and he is coming to rule as king. Not just Israel, but he's coming to be king of all nations. See, Caiaphas knew this prophecy. He knew what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming to be the Lord, the judge, and the king over all nations. Ah, he got him. Why? Well, who made that claim in first century AD in the Roman Empire? Only one person made that claim, and that was Caesar himself. Caesar declared to be God in flesh. Caesar declared to be Lord alone and king. So they got him on a statement made that could only be made about Caesar. This would have been considered high treason, a trial of high treason or political insurrection. And so this is what they tell Pilate. Pilate, listen to what he's claiming to be. He's claiming to be king. Verse 2, chapter 15. Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? To this, Jesus kind of replied like a, like a nuanced way. He goes, you have said so. But you could translate a lot of different ways. Either you're saying it, I'm not saying it, or you're saying it and it's right. Jesus is kind of ambiguous here. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And so Pilate asked him, 
Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. In the same way that Jesus stood silent before the religious court, Jesus does not try to defend himself or attempt to justify himself in this civil court. He is not trying to uh, appeal. He's not trying to barter. He's not trying to beg. He's not trying to plead, which is what everybody else did when they stood before Pilate. And so he's perplexed. He's amazed. Who is this that doesn't stick up for himself? Who is this that's so calm and accepting of his circumstances as unjust and as unfair as they were? It seems like Jesus maybe knew something that Pilate didn't. Yeah, maybe. We're going to come back to that. But we go on in this text and we see that Pilate is perplexed. And he's perplexed because he doesn't know what to do with Jesus. Because on one hand, he knows Jesus isn't this political insurrectionist. He's not this person that they're trying to make him out to be. He can tell that. And yet there's a mob that is forming outside of his courtroom, beginning to say that they want Jesus killed. You say, well, wait a second, wait a second, hold on, time out. Uh, Isn't this crowd, isn't this the same crowd that just a week ago, you heard Hayes talk about it, just a week ago, isn't the same crowd, the one who was saying, welcome Jesus, thank you for being here, we love you, laying down their palms, celebrating the arrival of Jesus? How in one week did they turn so quickly on Jesus? Well, I think what's going on here is that these religious leaders were inciting the crowd. What they were saying to him is, they were saying to the crowd is, listen, we've been telling you this whole time, this Jesus is a charlatan. This Jesus claimed to be king. He claimed to be the Messiah, the one who was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and get our freedom back. But look at him. He's chained and bound by Pontius Pilate. He's not the one that he said he was. We've been trying to tell you this whole time, and you haven't believed us. He's a fake. I think this is exactly what happened, and it's why Pilate eventually gave in to the pressure of the mob and released Jesus to be crucified. So do not miss the overpowering, tragic irony of these unjust circumstances. Think about it. Listen how one author puts it. Jesus, who is indeed king of the Jews in a deeply spiritual sense, has refused to lead a political uprising, yet now, condemned for blasphemy by the Jews because of his spiritual claims... He's accused by them, before, also before Pilate, by being precisely what he disappointed the crowds for failing to be, that is, a political insurgent. Now, this is as far as we want to go in the text today, because I want to go back to Pilate's question. Do you remember Pilate's, or Pilate's rather, his response? Pilate was amazed at this Jesus. Why is this Jesus not trying to justify himself? Why? Why was it? What is it that Jesus knew that Pilate didn't? The answer to that comes from John's account of this very same trial, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. Listen to what it says. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to free you or crucify you? He's saying, Jesus, don't you realize I have the power of life and death? You know how Jesus responds? No, you don't. 
you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Do you see what Jesus is saying? In a sense, Jesus is saying, Pilate, the only reason that you're able to do this to me is because God is allowing you to do it in order to fulfill his good and perfect plan for my life and for the sake of the whole world. Your actions, as evil and unjust and unfair as they are, this trial, as unfair and unjust as it is, none of that changes God's perfect plan one bit. His good plans will happen, and in fact, they're happening right on schedule. Pilate, you can't do anything to stop that. And this question about how God could allow unfair circumstances takes us to one of the great mysteries of the universe for for believers, for Christians, which is how is God's sovereignty, his control, his power, and man's free will, how do those two things fit together exactly? Now, this is a debate that has been happening for 2,000 years, and it continues. There's, you know, millions and millions of pages of spilled ink that uh, people debate this question about. In fact, my son's uh, small group, Nathan's student small group, uh, yeah, up there giving a shout out to that. Uh, They've been debating this in their small group about God's sovereignty and man's free will and how these two things fit together, which amazes me because at 15, well, I'm not going to tell you what I was thinking about at 15, but I was not thinking about sovereignty and free will at 15. So they're more mature than I am. But I said to Nathan, I said, okay, well, whatever you guys debate, keep in mind in your debate, your answer to this question has to take into account the consistent claim of the Bible, which is that every person alive has genuine free will. Every person alive has genuine free will, and yet somehow God superintends all of man's free will to make sure his sovereign plans are accomplished right on schedule. So wherever you land on this issue, make sure though those two things are locked in. And Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion is exhibit A of that truth. Think about this. You remember in Acts chapter 2, just days after Jesus is crucified and rose again on that Easter Sunday, do you remember Peter is giving a sermon to the Jewish people? And right there in Jerusalem, and in that very, and he's talking about that very same trial, he's talking about that very same execution, and listen to what he says as he's preaching this sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, men of Israel, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by the what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you say, there you go. That settles it. God's sovereignty right there in a text. Hold on. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. He says, you handed him over to be killed and disowned him before Pilate, even though Pilate had decided to let him go. Oh, wait a second. Man's free will, right? It's, it's right there. You know, score one for man's free will. Hold on. Acts chapter 3, verse 18. He concludes, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold throughout all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. What's he saying? Well, the Bible's saying that Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, who pushed for Jesus' crucifixion, they knew exactly what they were doing. They chose it with their own free will. 
that the Jewish mob went along with it, and they chose that by their free will, but at the very same time that God is in total control, that God allowed their actions and Pilate's decision to fulfill his perfect plan for Jesus' life and the world. And Jesus believed this. Jesus trusted that every circumstance in his life was in the hands of God. Every circumstance. And it was happening right on schedule. You say, well, that's good for Jesus. I mean, he's Jesus, but what about me? That's, that's not how my life works. Oh, yes, it does. Same thing. If you know the Lord, the same thing is true for you. It was true for Joseph in Genesis. Do you remember that when his brother sold him into slavery? And later, he saw the connection between that great evil thing and God's plan to help bring uh, sustenance to the people uh, around uh, Egypt and even the Israelites themselves. He said, what you intended for evil, God what? Intended it for good. Joseph knew it. Joseph saw it. Esther saw it. Naomi, Ruth saw it. The apostle Paul believed this when he was on house arrest, chained to the Roman guard. He still believed that God was intending it for his good. And this, friends, is the key to seeing life and all the seemingly unfair circumstances that happen in our life. It's this. Number one, trusting that God is in absolute control of every circumstance that comes into our life, working out his perfect plan for our lives, whether we see it or not. That two, trusting that God is bigger than the most unfair things people do to us and the most challenging trials that we face. And number three, trusting that God will take all that we see as unfair and unjust even every great evil and tragedy, and use it for his ultimate good and our good as well, even if we don't see it until eternity. Do you believe that? Friends, do you really believe that nothing will come into your life today or tomorrow that he did not either allow or decree for your ultimate good? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And here's where we get off track. When we become just like those two-year-olds, when we think, that's not fair. I know better what is fair in my life. I know better what is good for me. I know what the future holds for me and how all these little decisions are going to impact my future 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now in eternity. We think we know better than God, don't we? Now, we don't say it out loud quite like that, but in our hearts and our behavior, we basically say that we do when we say that. We think we know better what good means and fair means. Of course, our definition of good and fair means health, prosperity, ease, comfort, you know, uh, beauty, upward mobility, all of our plans working just as we want. This is our good. This is fair. But what if God's good looks a little different than yours? What if God's good? What if he's after character development? What, is he, what if he's after grit? What if he's a, after perseverance? What if he wants to work in, the, in your life a deeper joy that you can't just quite see yet? What if he wants to use your hard circumstances to impact somebody else's life that you might not even know you've impacted? That's God's good. 
Friends, when we try to think that we know better than God, we basically take the almighty God, the all-sovereign God, the all-good God, and we turn him into either a mean old tyrant or a genie in a bottle. God's just here to, you know, to bless all the things that I want to do, or God is so mean, he's keeping me from all the good things in my life. And either one, whatever, you know, kind of side you fall down on, we turn God into, into our own creation, made in our own image, in our own imagination, not the God of the Bible. But when we really believe, when we really believe that God is bigger than our circumstances, that God knows better than what we do about what is fair and good, that God can see into the future and knows what is coming, when we really do that, we can begin to turn over our circumstances, just like we are praying about and singing about this morning. We can get the perspective of Jesus. Now, does that mean that we just throw our hands up in resignation to our bad circumstances in our life, to the injustices or the, what's, what's in, uh, unfair in our lives? No, of course not. The, the Bible talks about this. You remember Esther? When Esther didn't just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, the the genocide of the Jewish people. I'll just like, you know, I guess that's what it is. No, what did she do? She worked a plan and said, maybe God wants to use me now. And so she worked the plan and she left it into God's hand, whatever it might be. Didn't Paul do this very same thing? He wasn't like, oh, well, I guess I'm arrested. I guess my ministry's over. No, he said, I'm appealing all my rights as a full citizen of Rome. I want to go see Caesar. And then he left the results in God's hands. Friends, this is what God's calling us to do. You work your process. You work hard to get your justice or to get that fairness or change your circumstances, but ultimately, you leave the results to God. You say, God, I can't see it yet, and this is painful. This is causing me stress and grief, but I trust that you're not done with me. God, my health, just it, the diagnosis doesn't look good, but I trust you with my life. I'm going to keep God, I'm going to keep being generous, even though there's uncertain economic times, because I trust that you're good. God, I'm going to trust you with my singleness. And I, I don't always like it, and there's times where I might want to go outside of your will to go change that circumstance, but I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust that you have me in this situation, this time in my life for a reason. Now, we don't always get to see the good that God has in store for us, do we? We don't always get to see it. Sometimes we only get little glimpses of it. And sometimes a little glimpse is all that we need to trust God. Back about nine years ago, Shannon and I and our family were living down in Northern Virginia. And we loved our life down in Northern Virginia. We really did. Loved the church that we were part of. It really felt like God was using me. We loved the, the, the town that we were living in, the house we were in. And we had great friends. I mean, we had awesome, just good friends, people that could hold us accountable, and we, we loved, and we prayed together a lot, and just, it was a great season of life. We had this babysitting swap thing going on, which was awesome, uh, where uh, another, this other couple, they watched our kids, and we got to go on date night, and then we would watch their kids, and they got to go on date night, which, by the way, like, figure out that situation for you if you have little kids. Get a swap or get like surrogate grandparents, you know, if your grandparents aren't here so they can watch your kids because you need date nights. Uh, this is just free. This is free advice. This isn't part of the sermon, okay? That's a bonus. But the point is, 
we really loved life. Like, man, this is awesome. We just hoped everything would kind of stay just like that. But you know what God started to do? What started happening is one by one, our friends, you know, they moved out of the town or they changed the church they were attending. Some of them moved out of the state and followed a different career. And, and slowly but surely, like, wait, wait a second, hold on, where are you going? All of our friends started to move away from us. And we were like, wait, we don't like this. God, what are you doing? This isn't good. We liked everything just the way it was. Why are you taking this away from us? Now, we didn't have the eyes to see it in that moment. But I'll tell you what, in hindsight, we see exactly what God was doing. God was preparing us. He was sort of making the nest uncomfortable for the birdies so the birdies would fly away. He was essentially doing that in our lives. He was making us uncomfortable so that we, could, we had the eyes to see we were prepared when he was going to call us somewhere else. And that's exactly what he did within 12 months of that experience. And I don't know whether I would have called back Craig Montgomery, the chairman of the Deacon Board, about the opportunity here at Brandywine Valley Church, if not for him making things uncomfortable then. See, God is at work even through the pain. I say, okay, okay. That's great and all, but how can I really trust that God is good? I mean, how can I really know that he is sovereign and in control? When I look around at the evil and the injustice and the unfair things in my life, how can I really trust that he's good? Friends, look at exhibit A, Jesus Christ. As we take communion, as we prepare our hearts to take this communion together, Friends, I want you to think about what happened at Jesus' trial. Do you remember Barabbas? Do you remember that there was a, a criminal there? That criminal, Barabbas, was supposed to be the one who went to be crucified. It would have been fair for Barabbas to be crucified. Why? Because he was a political insurrectionist. He murdered people, and he was caught doing it. If, if anybody should have gone to the cross, it was Barabbas. But that's not what happened. Why? Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He's a pastor about 100 years ago. He said, instead, the guilty one is set free and the innocent one is put to death. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ hath suffered in their stead the just for the unjust. They deserve punishment but a mighty substitute has suffered for them. Friends, do you, do you know what would have been fair? You know what is just? Grace isn't justice. Mercy isn't fair. Salvation isn't fair. And yet it's what we got. Why? Because the just died for the unjust. And it's why we can trust him in our circumstances, if he loved us enough to send his son to the cross to pay for our sin, to pay for our unjust deeds before him, friends, we can trust him to be good. I want you to reflect on that. We're going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to play a song, and as they're doing, reflect on that. Maybe you need to do some business. You might need to do some business with the Lord with areas of your life right now where you're just not trusting, you're white-knuckling your life and your circumstances, or you have God in the courtroom and you got him on trial right now about some things that are going on. You do business with him before we take up this communion together.
Do that now.